What a great video. Guys, Lauren made that video. <clears throat> she teed herself up. Did you see that? <clears throat> like the quarterback who passes to themselves for a touchdown. Fantastic. So almost every week after one of the two services, I get this question. Do you guys have a small groups ministry? The answer is yes, we have a small groups ministry, but our small groups take a break over the summer. So if you've been waiting, we're going to spend most of the month of August uh, informing you and preparing you for, again, the last week of August, and they'll go through the first week of December. We're going to have a huge launch in two or three Sundays out there in the foyer. But it, right now, we need plenty of hosts and leaders, and those do not have to be the same people. I don't know if you caught that, but a couple of these here in the video either host or lead a table group. Some people do both, but if you're proficient or comfortable with doing one but not the other, then there still might be space for you. So all we would ask is if you're interested, email Rachel Brown. Rachel is over our kids' ministry. That's mostly what she's known for, but Rachel is also uh, our communications director. So please email Rachel Brown if you are interested or just flat out compelled by the Spirit in this moment or by Lauren's awesome filmmaking, okay? <clears throat> We've been in a series on the Spirit-filled life. For most of the summer, that will be uh, lingering for a few more weeks, and then we're going to actually be jumping into a series on the Kings for the fall to take us all the way up to Advent. And uh, some of the topics that we've touched on are the baptism in the Spirit, praying in tongues, being empowered for good works, the authority that comes through relationship in the name of Jesus. And last week, Pastor Jade talked about the power of the Spirit for and through adversity. That was a blast. Welcome to Midtown. Um, today is not going to be too much more exciting we're going to talk about the spirit who challenges us to change, grow, and mature. The spirit who challenges us to change and grow and mature. So last week, if you were here, Pastor Jade mentioned early on in the message that we had primarily been reading and focusing on the supernatural activity which is prolific throughout the book of Acts. It seems like on every page there is something miraculous or supernatural happening. But concurrently, it also seems that almost every mountaintop is followed by a really low valley of persecution or trouble or just flat-out problems that come with growth and with change. And so last week he talked about the Spirit who empowers us to walk through adversity. But I'd like to submit this morning that the book of Acts is really not about either of those things, but it's about the work that God is doing to form his people in the midst and through those things. That through supernatural signs and wonders, through healing, through speaking in tongues, through words of prophecy, the Lord is showing us something about himself and something about his kingdom. But God is also equally as work in adversity, in trouble, in persecution, in problems, in all of these things. The thread that runs between them is that there is nothing that happens to us that God is not at work in. Which, hear me, is not the same thing as saying that God is causing all things to happen. But things are happening, and God is at work in all of them, building and shaping and forming his people. So today, we're going to talk about the spirit that challenges us 
to change and to grow and to mature. Why is change so hard? Now, there are people in this congregation, this audience, far more qualified to answer that question thoroughly than I am. But as I was thinking and pondering, what, what are the, why do we resist change so much? I think there are many reasons, but there are two that I want to highlight right here at the beginning. The first is because it requires making conscious what was previously unconscious. We've all moved at some point in our lives. Well, when you've been in a house for years, you just autopilot, know where everything is. You know where the Tupperware drawer is, you know where the spice cabinet, and when you're in the kitchen, you're just intuiting all around. You're not thinking, where is XYZ? Your body just knows. But then when you move to a new space, you go to that cabinet, and you're looking for cinnamon, and you find sippy cups. It's just, oh, it takes time. It takes three, four, five, six months to really wrap your head around this new space. Or how many of you have ever moved, and then after leaving work, found yourself driving to your old residence? I've done that multiple times. It's kind of scary to think about the fact that we drive on autopilot. That's a little scary. But one of the reasons change is so hard is because it confronts us with making things that were previously unconscious, conscious. We have to think about things we didn't used to think about. And the second reason is when that happens, sometimes the things now that are conscious before us help us to see that we were wrong. We were wrong about something. We were wrong about something maybe for a really long time. And most people don't like to be humbled in that way. I, for one, can speak. I do not like to be humbled in the way of recognizing, especially in front of other people, that I was wrong for a long period of time about something. And now what was previously unconscious, a blind spot, now is brought before me as something. And now I have to choose. Will I now willfully continue in what I know to be wrong? Or will I walk through the process of change? You know, Jesus tells us as much in Matthew 18, verse 3. He says, unless you change and become like little children, you can't even enter into the kingdom of God. Unless you change, he's talking to people, most of whom grew up in the Jewish tradition, who were familiar with the Torah, who knew all about the holy days and about the food customs. They knew all the things they should and should not do. But what they were missing was a piece of God's heart that would unlock and unleash a part of God's plan. And Jesus says, you're never going to get it unless you're willing to change and become like a little child. So what exactly does that mean? Well, I think amongst other things, kids are, they're constantly in awe and wonder. They're curious. They love to learn. They're eager to learn. Kids are eager about everything but obedience. Amen? <laughs> Kids are just eager. They're just zealous. Unless it requires doing something they don't want to do, of course. But when they're a kid, you know, you like to do a lot of stuff. I think that is all true. I also think that there's a deeper layer that kids, particularly in the first century, were quite literally humbled 
to be the bottom of the hierarchical totem pole, that kids were at the bottom of the socioeconomic status in society. They weren't venerated in the way that they are now, where we have commercials and marketing and advertising intentionally appeal to things for children because especially in America, what marketers and advertisers know is that if you can get parents and grandkids to spend, or grandparents to spend money on anything, it's on children. So if we want to release funds into the economy, propagate children. It wasn't that way in the first century. Kids were humble. They were fully dependent. And they may not have known that they didn't know everything, but kids don't know what's best for themselves. And I think, among other things, what Jesus is saying is, unless you become like a child, someone who maybe not functionally is aware of their humility, but they are fully dependent, they are humbled, they are at the bottom, they are the ones who are called upon to serve, not to be served. Jesus calls us to change and be like that kind of person if we even want to enter into the kingdom of heaven much less rise to the top of the kingdom of heaven, which he goes on to talk about. Today's story, I believe, is the second most important story in the book of Acts, behind Acts chapter 1 and 2, the story of Pentecost. And this is the story in Acts chapter 10 of Peter and Cornelius. And frankly, if it weren't for this story, most of us in the room would not be sitting in the room today. This is the story where Peter comes to see that God's heart is bigger than just for the Jewish people. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 10. We're going to read two big chunks of scripture, but I promise it's good for you. I'm like a parent and you're like a child. You don't think it's good for you, but it's good for you, okay? So here we go. Verse 1, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Keep in mind, this is not a Jewish man. This is an Italian man of wealth and power. And yet somehow had come to be a God-fearing man who prayed regularly and gave of his resources to those in need. One day at about three in the afternoon, one of the times of prayer, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. And the angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them off to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city where Peter was, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. And here's the miracle. Surely not, Lord. Peter recognized this wild and crazy trance dream thing as being from God. 
If I saw this, there's no way on earth I would have assumed it was from God. Think about how odd this is. This is such an odd dream. Peter says, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Skipping ahead to verse 19. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who was respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads in prayer before we unpack this a little bit. Holy Spirit, we thank you for this text and the way that you breathe on the text to open us up and speak to us. We ask that it would be like a mirror today to reveal to us what is in our hearts, our thoughts, our minds. Where might you be tapping on the window of our soul trying to get our attention? And we ask that there would be not an ounce of condemnation in this, but that there would be only invitation. Invitation to come and follow Jesus once again afresh and anew. We ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. So what's happening? What's happening is we have this simultaneous activity where God first shows up to a man named Cornelius that I pointed out is part of the Italian regiment. He is not a Jew, but somehow, some way along his journey, he has discovered Yahweh and become a God-fearing man. And God speaks to Cornelius in one of the times of prayer, and he sends an angel and says, Cornelius, I've heard your prayers and I've seen your offerings. It's good stuff. Now, take some of the men under your care and send them down to Joppa to find the man Simon, who's staying at Simon the Tanner's house. He has something to say to you. This is all Cornelius knows, but Cornelius is apparently in desperation, or he's just awakened by an angel and afraid. And so he says, uh, yes, Lord, I love being alive, and so I'm going to obey you. I'm going to do what you ask. And as those men are on their way, Peter, the following day, is in a time of prayer, and Peter has this vision, this odd vision of a sheet coming down from heaven with all of the animals that were not kosher, that were unclean. And a voice comes in this vision, in this trance, in this dream, and says, Peter, do not, uh, do not call what I call clean unclean. Go ahead and kill and eat these things. And Peter is shocked. He probably in the moment feels like it's a test. He probably feels like God is testing the sincerity of his heart, of his knowledge of the customs, of his willpower and his obedience to follow the customs. Maybe he had in mind the story of Abraham and Isaac and thought, this is my test moment and I'm going to pass my test. But here's the thing, this vision, this trance, it goes on three times. And if you recall some of Peter's story, you'll know that Peter has a thing with the number three. 
that Peter denies Jesus three times, and when it's brought to his attention, he breaks. He's undone. He realizes, oh God, the thing that I said I would never do, I've done the very thing, the very thing three times. And then at the end of the book of John, Jesus meets Peter at the shore. Peter jumps off of the boat, sees Jesus at the shore. And for reasons that we're not sure of, Peter jumps off. He doesn't want to come back with the rest of the, of the disciples. Presumably, maybe he's afraid he's going to be shamed publicly in front of his companions. So Peter swims back to the shore, and Jesus is preparing breakfast and says, Peter, do you love me? He says, you know I love you, so feed my sheep. And that happens how many times? Three times. So Peter has this thing with the number three that I believe after it happened three times, Peter's curiosity is piqued and goes, maybe the Lord is getting through to me. Maybe there's something here. So Peter finds that these, this centurion has sent three men and basically the time he comes out of prayer, they're at his doorstep. So he goes downstairs and, well, the Lord has told me you're coming. I'm the one you're looking for. Why are you coming? They explain why they're coming. And Peter says, okay, well, come in. And then we're going to pick up the story here in verse 23. <clears throat> then Peter invited the men into his house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. Surprise, he said to them, you're well aware it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour. At three in the afternoon, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa. For Simon, who is called Peter, he is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now, we're all here, waiting in the presence of God to hear everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Amen. Okay, a couple of things before we <clears throat> talk about where this meets you and me. The beginning of this story, God is working on Cornelius and God is working on Peter. And here's the thing. Neither one of them are aware of the end and neither one of them are aware of what God is doing for the other person and what it might ultimately mean for them. And here's part of the beauty for you and for me, that we respond to the challenge, to the growth, to the correction of the Holy Spirit, not just because he's saying to do it, which is, of course, good, but why is God ever encouraging us and calling us and inviting us to grow? It's because our obedience always has implications for other people. 
that what God is doing in and through you, yes, it is absolutely for you. It is for your purity, for your holiness, for your growth, for your closeness with Jesus. But it's not just that. That everything God is doing in you, he's doing to get through to somebody else. And the good news there is that everything God is doing in me, he means to somehow get through to you as well. That when God is at work, he's never just working on one thing and one level. God is infinitely, eternally creative, which means that his power is not just more than the same kind of power that we have, but that his power works altogether differently. That God's power is a creative kind of power that brings something out of nothing. And we serve the God who is working on Cornelius and working on Peter and working on all the people in between for this moment to converge so that you and I could be here in this room today. Do you realize that without this revelation coming to the apostles, most of us would not be here? Now, I believe that, of course, at some point God was going to get through to somebody because God's plans have always been to involve the people of Israel, to be a blessing to the rest of the peoples of the world. But Peter in this moment is confronted. Are you going to say yes and allow the Spirit to challenge you, to bring you to growth and to maturity without knowing what's on the other side? Are you willing? And fortunately, Peter and Cornelius both say yes. So God is at work at both of them. And then there's this moment, which I think is hilarious. So Peter comes back with the little entourage, and he's, and imagine, he's standing at the threshold of the door, and the door opens, and he sees Cornelius, presumably the one who's, you know, in charge, and he sees Cornelius' family and relatives and friends. There's this whole group of people. He thought he was just going to meet one man. This one man has recruited everybody he can fit into his house. And the man says, Peter, it was so good that you would come. God told us to send for you to hear everything you have to say. And Peter goes, I'm not even supposed to be here. I don't have anything to say to you. And as I was reading this story, it reminded me of uh, when Bonnie and I first started dating. The fall of 2009, both of us converged on the campus of Oral Roberts University. Bonnie is a transfer junior. And I had just graduated from another uh, undergrad um, college and came to ORU to work there. And very quickly, we made a friend named Robert who befriended both of us. And Robert discerned that we were good for one another long before we discerned we would be good for one another. And Robert tells me to get me to go on a date with her. Oh, man, Bonnie's got such a crush on you. And you know how the rest of this goes. He goes and tells her the same thing about me. So on our first date, we both have this posturing of, uh, I sure thought I was told that she had the hots for me, but she's not exactly acting that way today. And she's having the same posture back toward me. But Robert's chill about the whole thing because he knows ultimately they're going to figure it out. They're going to be good for each other. And I think God was kind of acting like Robert a little bit in this moment that Peter and Cornelius had no idea. They were being set up. All the angel told Cornelius is go send for this man named Peter. 
He doesn't know who this Peter is. He had to be told he's staying at a man's house named Simon the Tanner. So he goes and sends for this man. And Peter doesn't know who Cornelius is, and he certainly doesn't know who all these other people are. But God has brought them together in this moment. And Cornelius says, God told me we need to hear what you have to say. So Peter does what he does best. He opens his mouth. He opens his mouth. And what comes out? Peter says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Sometimes we just have to trust that someone else might know what we need even when we don't know what we need. And it's best if that someone happens to be God. Amen? It's best if we learn to posture ourselves humbly and say, Lord, I don't know what's happening here. I don't know why you're bringing these people across my path, but you do. And so I say yes, and I say amen. And I say, at least for now, I'm going with it. So Peter arrives. He's still mildly confused. He says, it's unlawful for me to be here. And then he asks Cornelius directly. See, prior he had asked Cornelius' servants, why did you come for me? But now he's in front of Cornelius, and he says, why did you send for me? And when Peter hears all that God went through to get to Cornelius, to get to him, he recognizes God doesn't just go through all this trouble for his chosen people. God's willing to go through all this trouble for everyone because God loves everyone. God wants all of us in his family. When Peter had the, the light bulb moment, the eureka moment, it was when he recognized all that God had been doing for this Gentile man, and it didn't come through me, a chosen Jew. Imagine that. And it humbled Peter. And Peter then was even more open to seeing, God, what are you doing? I've believed this my whole life, but clearly you're up to something because of all the stuff. This couldn't have happened coincidentally. This man couldn't have been lying because here we are in this moment, and it wouldn't have happened any other way. So Peter's eyes were opened when he heard the other man's story. Now that is not what this message is about, but some of you have to learn how to share your story, not because you need to learn how to talk and be heard, but because it might unlock something for somebody else. Sometimes what we're longing for, we want to come directly from God. God, why don't you just tell me? But instead, what God does is he says, actually, you need to go talk to that person, and I'm going to let them tell you. That was extra. Also, have you noticed that there was a progression here? That Peter didn't just change his mind all of a sudden, all at once. That Peter has this vision, but when, it com when he comes out of the trance, it says, and as Peter was thinking about or pondering, depending on your text, these things... The Spirit spoke to him and said, three men are coming. It's okay. I sent them. So Peter is still thinking about these things. Then he goes with the guys, and he gets to the threshold. And the moment we just rehearsed, and he says, you know it's unclean for me to step over this threshold into the house. So Peter's still wrestling with what this means, but his posture is open toward God. It all didn't happen at once because God probably knew that if he had just flat out told Peter in the beginning, Peter would have said, nope, I rebuke you, Satan. 
And God's like, it's me. And he's like, nope, can't be you. I rebuke you, Satan. And this is how we are sometimes when we're so ingrained in our thoughts, in our beliefs, in our patterns, and the things that we're used to, that even if God spoke directly to you about something, you wouldn't be able to hear it because your mind is closed off. And so God walks us through a process, a journey. Think about Peter in Matthew chapter 16, the story where Jesus is giving them you know, a little test. And he says to his disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter does that thing that he does so well, right? He opens up that mouth, and he's right this time. And he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus gives him a Buckeye helmet sticker and says, yes, sir, A+. plus. You could have only received, that was for you, Greg. You could have only received that by revelation from the Father. And the very next story, Jesus says, and as the Messiah, I must die I must be crucified. And Peter says, "Mm, not that far. And he pulls Jesus aside and he corrects Jesus. Because to Peter, Messiahs don't die. Peter heard the revelation, interpreted through the framework which he had received throughout his entire life of being raised up in the synagogue. Peter heard directly from God and still missed what it meant for his own life. This is why we can't just wait on a single moment from God. We have to be willing to journey with him over and over again, day after day, moment by moment. New mercy every morning. New revelation all the time. Stay in the word. Stay in prayer. Stay in the people of God. Because it doesn't matter if God speaks to you directly. You can still miss it. You can still miss it. And guess what? Most of us probably have. So you're in good company. All right. There's lots in this passage. But what might God's wisdom for us, New Life Midtown, the second to last day of July 2023 be? I don't know all of what God is doing in this space a lot. And if you've been around for a few weeks or months, a few years, you'll know that we're in a sweet season where God is doing a lot in this place. And I don't know what all of it is, but here's what I do know. If we want that to be sustained over the long haul, then we have to become the kind of people that, like Peter, are humble enough to say, God, I will put everything before you and let you tease it all out. I don't want to hold on to things just because I've held on to them for this long. I don't want to take things to the grave just because I'm stubborn. But God, I want to allow everything to be unpacked by you. And maybe a good chunk of it gets to stay, by the way. This is not God's going to upend everybody's lives this afternoon. Maybe, but hopefully not. But God, we're willing to be the kind of people who you can pick apart anything in our lives if it means that we will grow closer to you and other people will come to you. So the first thing. What is, this, what is the wisdom in this story for us? Number one, God will challenge anything that stands in the way of you or someone else following Jesus. God will challenge sinful behaviors, habits, and patterns. God will confront and challenge prejudices against groups of people or maybe individuals or types of personalities that over the course of your life you've recognized, I don't like these kinds of people. 
God will challenge assumptions about ethnicities, other nationalities, even other religions. Those kinds of people are all that way. God will challenge judgments about other kinds of Christians. Oh, the Baptists. Oh, those dead Methodists. Oh, those religious Catholics. Oh, those lacking in self-control charismatics. (laughs) If I could drop the mic, I would drop it, but that would be weird. (laughs) Whatever the assumptions are, the prejudices, the judgments, views on money, views against your parents, your spouse, whatever it is, God is willing to challenge anything that is in between you and you following Jesus or other people following Jesus. And friends, this is good news because he's challenged something in someone else that has led to you coming to the faith. So this is good news. This is God's mercy. This is his grace being poured out. Now I want to be really clear. Change is not inherently good in and of itself. I'm not propagating a progressivism just for change for the sake of change to move along with the times. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about change when it leads to Christ-likeness, when it leads to the life of God emanating and radiating from our lives. That's the kind of change that we're pursuing. We're pursuing anything that stands between us and Jesus being removed. This is why Jesus had such a hard time with the Pharisees. The Pharisees knew the scriptures as well as anyone, the Pharisees and the scribes, and yet they were constantly butting up against, God, you can't mean that. You can't mean that. You can't mean that. Because they knew the word so well, but they didn't know the heart behind the word. And therefore, they didn't know the fullness of the plan. And so Jesus kept butting up against the Pharisees because the Pharisees were unwilling to change and become humble like little children, willing to rethink things, willing to be at the bottom of the hierarchy and say, teacher, teach us, we don't know. We think we know, but clearly we don't. So would you please teach us? God will challenge anything that stands in the way of you or anyone else walking with Jesus. Number two, prayer is essential to becoming a person who can discern God's guidance and wisdom. How did both of these stories begin? Cornelius at noon, the time of prayer. Then he's identified as a God-fearing man who God remembered his frequent prayers and his almsgiving, his giving to the poor. Cornelius in the time of prayer. Then Simon Peter at noon the following day, the time of prayer. These men had likely been praying five times a day for years and years. And who knows if this is the first time the inbreaking of the Spirit had ever happened. How many countless times were they just doing the prayers, praying the prayers, praying Psalm 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, Nothing's happening. God, I sure hope you're out there hearing this. I sure hope you're out there hearing this. All the while, God is watching. God is watching. He's hearing Cornelius' prayers. He's hearing Simon Simon Peter's prayers. And what they don't know is that they are the answer to each other's prayers. And so God breaks in in a moment. 
Now, why God has created this thing called prayer that is the primary way that we engage with him, I don't know. I don't know how it all works. I don't know how some prayers seem to get answered and others don't. I have thoughts. I have opinions. They're at best half right. It's a mixed bag. Prayer is complicated. But here's what I do know. There are a lot of things that God wants to get through to us, but he can't start with our thoughts because our thoughts are far too closed off toward him and toward other people. Prayer softens and postures our heart toward God and toward other people to be open to things we would never be open to intellectually. Which is not to say we shouldn't pursue intellectual growth, of course. But it is to say some of these big, daunting things in our lives that God wants to put his finger on, he's likely to put his finger on it first in the place of prayer. And you get an inclination, you get a feeling, you get a sense. Then you have a conversation with someone and it buds a little bit more and it starts to grow a little bit more. And then you hear a sermon, then you're in a time of prayer again. Then you're in counsel with other people and then you're at work and it shows up in reality. How did it start? It started in the place of prayer. Are we committed to being the kinds of people who are humbled through regular, faithful prayer? Showing up before God when nothing seems to be happening over and over and over again. Because you know what? 30 minutes before this vision happened, Peter was walking into his normal prayer time. He was thinking everything is just fine. I've been preaching to thousands. Thousands are coming to the Lord. I'm as pure and I'm as holy as I've ever been. And then God breaks in in a moment and says, Peter, you're missing a huge piece. What if Peter had skipped out on that day's prayer time? I don't know. Now, I believe God is merciful, so I do believe God would have showed up to him another way. But the point is, we don't just show up when spectacular things are happening. Spectacular things tend to come out of faithful, mundane things. The second, prayer is essential to becoming a person who can discern God's guidance and wisdom. Third, Trust that God will patiently guide at every step along the way. God didn't give Peter the full plan in the vision. The vision was enough to shake him up. And it happened three times, so Peter identified it as God is trying to speak to me. But he didn't give him the full thing. Peter didn't know the end. Where In just a moment, we're going to see in Acts chapter 15, the conclusion that Peter comes to. He didn't know all of that in the moment. Peter knew just enough in the moment to know God is at work and I think I need to follow him. I think I need to trust him. One more step. God, I'm willing to go with these guys. I don't know what's going to happen when I get there, but if you say they're safe, I'll go with them. God, if you say I should go into the house, I'll cross over into the threshold, even though everything inside of me says that it's unlawful to do so. God will be with you every step along the way. Friends, there are things in your lives, and I don't know what they are, I only know what some of mine are, that God is putting his finger on to challenge. Ideas, postures. Just take that laundry list of things that I I read off and sit before the Lord with it and say, God, what do you have? Some of those things, if God showed you where you would end up five years from now or 10 years from now, being open to those kinds of people, with a heart that's tenderized 
toward those kinds of things, those ways of worshiping Jesus, then you'd never even take the first step. But trust God enough to know that he is with you every step of the way. Seth, you can come. Communion attendants, you guys can wait just a moment. We're going to read a couple of verses from Acts chapter 15. So the third is trust that God will patiently guide you every step along the way. Well, where did Peter end up? Acts chapter 15 tells us where Peter ended up. So between Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 15, Gentiles are coming to follow Jesus countless. They're coming in droves. And so now the elders and the apostles have before them this question. It ends up seeming like the question is about circumcision, but really the question is, how Jewish do they have to become to follow Jesus? How Jewish do we have to raise the bar for these Gentiles? How much do they have to follow the law? Do the males have to get circumcised? Do they have to follow all the high holy days? Do they have to participate in all the dietary restrictions? So they gather a council of apostles and elders in Acts chapter 15 in Jerusalem, and they're having a conversation. And in verse 6, this is what happens. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and come to believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Peter had had time to think about it. And what Peter came to see was that even though in the, on the day of Pentecost he preached that sermon in Acts chapter 2 and he referenced Joel chapter 2 and said, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all people, Peter had come to realize that when I said that, I had no idea what God meant. And now Peter has the humility and the awareness to see God's been working in them all along the same way he's been working in us. God wanted us to be the ones to bless every nation of the earth, not be above every nation of the earth. That God poured out his spirit on them the same way he poured out his spirit on us because God first cleansed their hearts by faith the same way he's cleansed our hearts by faith. And friends, if we want to be the kind of people who are open to the Spirit and are open to one another, we have to learn to model and embody this kind of humility. To say, I couldn't see God at work in them before, but now I see it clearly. God's been at work in them the same way he's been at work in us. And I couldn't be here without them, and they couldn't be here without me. Stand to your feet, communion attendants, if you would come. God is at work in the hearts of those we least expect. God is at work in the hearts of those we least expect. We come to this table week after week, Sunday after Sunday, after good messages and after subpar messages, 
after great worship services and after mediocre worship services. Not because we are ones who are perfectly pure, but because we are ones who are impure and we recognize our impurity and our need to come and be purified by the Savior at his table. We come to this place because of our dependence, not because of our independence. We come confessing our sins, not confessing all of the things that we did right this week. It has become almost a lost practice among Protestants to confess our sins. We've got a, a weird thing about it. We think as long as God's touched a thing in our hearts that nobody else needs to know about it. And we certainly don't have to say it out loud. God knows. And there's part of that which is absolutely true. You don't have to say it out loud to be forgiven. But we say it out loud to remind ourselves and to remind one another how desperately in need of a Savior we are. And there is never a moment in our lives where we move beyond that. If ever there was, it's Simon Peter after Acts chapter 2, having led thousands to the Lord, having just received the baptism of the Spirit. And God says, I'm not done with you yet, Peter. There's a big piece that's broken and missing inside of your heart. So we come as ones who are broken in need of purity. We're going to pray the prayer of confession this morning. It's going to be up on the screen. As we prepare our hearts to come to the table, let us read this aloud together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and deed. By what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. If you would stretch out your hands to these elements and these communion attendants, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come in power and do what only you can do. Make this bread, the body of Christ, broken for us and make this juice the blood of Christ spilled and shed for the remission of our sins and the establishment of a new covenant. Holy Spirit, come and do what you can only do on these elements and also in the human heart. As we come forward, would you soften and tenderize hardened hearts in this place today? Friends, this is the table of the Lord, not the table of New Life Midtown. We invite those who want to come and meet Jesus Christ, our living Lord, to come and receive of these elements. You can exit out the left-hand side of your row, come and receive, enter back on the right, and we will partake together in just a moment. Come to the table.